welcome back to the Times and Places podcast with me, Caitlin Bryant. Each week, I sit down with a different guest to discuss how particular times and places has meant something of significance to them or has impacted their life in some way. Today's episode is with Everton and Welsh goalkeeper Neville Southall. Neville has been regarded as one of the best goalkeepers of his generation, playing professional football for over three decades, in which he made 751 appearances at Everton, as well as 92 appearances for Wales. During his time at Everton, they won two league titles, two FA Cups and were European Cup champions. However, these days, Neville is known for giving a voice to marginalised groups within society. He's been known to hand over his Twitter account to various groups and organisations that support them, to use his platform to educate, support and answer questions people may have on specific topics or matters. In this episode, we talk about his childhood growing up in Llandidno, the people that came into his life at the right place and the right time that resulted in him signing with Everton, as well as the biggest things that he's learned over the years. We also discuss how he left professional sport to become a teacher and what he's most passionate about today and why he believes he should use his platform to help others. So here it is, episode seven, the Times and Places podcast with Neville Southport. Oh, how are you doing? Thank you so, so much for doing this. It's fine. Whereabouts are you? I live between Kamal and Atlantilo. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I thought I'd take it back to the start and talk about the small Welsh town in which you grew up. How would you describe your childhood and upbringing in Llandidno? Innocent, very innocent. I think looking look at the childhood now, schools, I think it was ideal, idyllic, I would have thought. Really, there was, I think, four, maximum five kids I could play football up there, and three, and obviously three in a family with me. You know, there was three of us, and then two others who occasionally played. So it was nice and... I was born in a house up on the Orm, so yeah, it was my mum and dad were easygoing people. You know, a nice tin bath in front of the fire on a Sunday night. <laughs> That's yeah. like, yeah, my grand, I've always, the tin bath is something that like reminds me of my grand. She always used to tell me that's what she'd always have. Yeah, like, but oh. she had it to herself. There was three of us. <laughs> no, 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 but she was one of 11, so I don't think she was having it to herself. <laughs> I know you mentioned there that you're one of three brothers, but I'm also a middle child of two brothers. And I know the feeling far too well of being told what to do when you don't really have a say in the matter. But it sounds like this sort of classic case of middle child syndrome kind of worked in your favour. And that's how you found yourself between the posts. Because the youngest one was too young to go in goal. The oldest one wouldn't. So <laughs> it's like, well, I guess I'll be there. <laughs> yes. You know, I think... Being a middle child, you can be more independent. Tread your own path, as it were, can't you? Yeah, kind of slip through the net and then sort of figure it out, figure it out for yourself. One story that I read, which I absolutely loved, and you were saying about how, was it your Uncle Johnny took you guys on like a football tour to Germany? Well, when he turned up with a bus, we didn't think he'd actually get out of land, did (laughs) not. When we did actually arrive in Germany, we had a crash straight away. No. Uh, you went into the side of some car, but we managed to get through that. And then, funny enough, we played against a team called Fortuna, uh, Fortuna Sittard, I think it was. Mm. Um, or was it Dusseldorf? No, Dusseldorf. Dusseldorf we played, and uh, they come the next day. And as we were getting on the bus, he said, oh, they want to sign you. Do you want to stay? 
I thought, I'm 14. Why are you asking me? I want to stay in Germany. I have no idea what Germany is. I've only seen it on the bus, and you're asking me to stay. That's just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. But, you know, it would have been nice in hindsight if I would have been given the opportunity in a different way. Yeah. But it's that thing again, isn't it, of you could have taken that opportunity and then your life could have gone down a different path and then you might not have had the experiences and success that you have now. So, yeah, it is funny how those just like moments and split decisions could potentially change the sort of course of your life forever if you did decide to choose them. But also how you're presented with them opportunities. Mm. 14 to say, do you want to stay in a country you visited 24 hours with no... No other explanation apart yeah. from why don't you stay here and they want to sign you. I'm thinking, right, okay, and that's it. Not, well, they'll take you here and they'll put you up here and they'll do this for you. They'll do that. It was just like, do you want to stay? And I went, well, no, obviously I want to go home. <laughs> that, was my, that was my first experience of going abroad. Funny enough, it's always stuck with me that I, I love Germany as a country. That was one of the places that I thought I could actually go and play if I ever left Devon. Mm. I never that was one of the places I thought, yeah, I could actually go and play there because they were they were really well organised, really friendly people, and the place was immaculate. I think it got reinforced when we went to play Germany internationally as well. Yeah, how interesting is that as well when you were given the opportunity so young too, but then even like years later when you were older, you always were like, oh, that is the one place that I would have liked to have potentially played. And... As the podcast theme is on times and places, I always like to ask each of the guests if there's ever any moments in their life where maybe it seemed like fate or destiny and kind of like the stars aligned and everything fell into place at the right time. Have there been any moments in your life where it seemed like that? Well, I think I've been incredibly lucky. I think maybe not at the time, but when you look back, I was I was playing for Bangor City. The money seemed to run out. But they paid all they paid all the lads from Liverpool off, and they gave me a check for ten quid, and it bounced. <laughs> and I was on the dole at the time, so then the dole said, "Yeah, but you're getting paid by them, so we're not giving you the penny." So I didn't get any money, and then I went to play for a club called Conway United, where I had to pay three quid subs. The fellow who signed me also knew somebody in Cheshire, and I went from there on his say so after the season to play a friendly at Winsford, and that fellow then. Obviously, he, he signed me and I played the whole season at Winsford. And then luckily, then Betty signed me. So if it hadn't been for Banger bouncing a check on me, I would never have gone to Conway. And I would have never have gone to Winsford and I would never have gone to Betty and never have gone to Everton. So, uh, so I suppose things fall into place like that. Yeah, and I think hindsight's a beautiful thing, but not a luxury we have in the moment, especially when things are going wrong or seem like they're not working out how we predicted. But if you could give your younger self one bit of advice now, after everything you've learned over the years, what would it be? I would take on board everybody's advice. And then because I am me, does it suit me as an individual? If it doesn't, I ain't going to use it, am I? Because our advice is based on us, isn't it? Yeah. And I don't know you, but you know you. So if I give you advice, you go, well, will that suit me? No, it don't. So I'm not going to use it. Mm. It's pretty be trying to force somebody else's advice onto myself if it don't work because we're all individuals and we all know ourselves best so I like to think that I will do things that might not seem great for other people but they're to get myself the best to help them in the, in the long run 
Yeah, I think also that's something that I definitely think I'm learning more as I get older is listen to people, but don't always do as they say which I think is something that I always used to do is I ne- I would always like take everything on board literally. Whereas yeah. like now it's like, listen, and sometimes people have like great advice and things to say, but a lot of the time you have to go with your gut. But I think it's really interesting you saying that and giving that advice of really believing in yourself and not necessarily listening to everyone else and their opinions around you. Because this was something that you could clearly see in the way in which you approach football. But a perfect example of it was that in 1990 when Everton were 2-0 down to Leeds at Goodison Park and you decided to stay on the pitch at half-time because you just weren't having a good game. But what was your thinking behind it? Because I think there seemed to be a lot of backlash and people had their own opinions. But why? Like, what was your point of view as to why you did that? But see, everybody tells me that I stayed on the pitch, but I didn't. I went in the changing rooms and it was noisy and it was loud and I thought, too many arguments, I've got to clear my head. And because I'd asked for the transfer in the summer, people put two and two together and said, right, that must be a protest. It wasn't a protest, it was just trying to clear my head. Mm. And they go out on the pitch and it, it was, went nice and quiet and I, and I played better second half. But I'd, I'd done it at Wimbledon, right, be, before that. When I went at Wimbledon when I used to play at Plough Lane, which is their old ground. And it was boiling hot day and they put like 3,000 sugars in your tea. Do you know what I mean? On purpose. So you just, and I thought, I can't stay in it. It's too hot for me and I can't. So I just went and sat on the pitch. Nobody said a word about that. Not Mm. one. I've only met one person in my lifetime so far who was at the game and remembers it. So it wasn't a big deal. But because you're at home and you're losing and transfer requests has gone in and you all think it's a protest. Yeah, it wasn't a protest. But when the manager phoned me up all night, he said, why did you do it? I said, well, I need to clear my head. I need some space. He went, oh, you're an idiot. And, uh, and it just went on from there. Really. So, yeah, there was a backlash, but look, you got to do what you got to do, haven't you? Yeah. It's really fascinating because I always find this when with any sort of profession that's in the public eye. You know, if you just li- you were doing like a normal office job and you just needed to go and clear your head or you just needed to like leave the office to go and do something because no one's watching you do these things. It's never an issue, but it's interesting that how being in professional sport and because all eyes are on you, that something that really is actually just quite a simple thing is totally like blown out of proportion. Well, I think it's, but look at social media now. Mm. If I put on Twitter out, it's a lovely day. Somebody says it, it's not. It's always somebody to contradict yeah. yourself. You know, you get to a point where you go, does it really matter what they say? No, don't. My agent at the time said to me, look, today's news is tomorrow fish and chips paper. So tomorrow it'll be somebody else. So don't worry about it. But do you think that because you weren't, you were semi-professional for quite a long period of time and you had normal jobs and it made you realise just you know, how lucky you were, I guess, to be a professional football player and put things in perspective a bit more? Yeah, well, when I worked on it, I worked on the well, bins for, I suppose, six to eight weeks. Mm. Do you know the one thing that really annoys me? Go on. They say it as if it's a bad job. But it is that thing of, I have never understand this notion of shaming jobs. But they think it bothers me. I was actually quite proud that I did it. I had a good laugh at And again, it was another lesson in, in teamwork, it wasn't the cleanest job, it wasn't the most glamorous job, but 
I enjoyed it because it was good crack with the lads. You're in a little team that you got, you know, as soon as you work hard, you finish. Then that, that was that was your way of doing it. So uh, being part of a team is important. And whenever you are, having that crack with different people is learning how to get on. It's great. If you work in a team, it doesn't matter what you do, you've got to have that. You've got to gel together to do the job, haven't you? So for me, life lessons are always in whatever you do. So I've been quite lucky, really, that I've been lots of different sort of teams and lots of different characters. And it helps you when you when you first become a professional, obviously, that you need to get along with people. And also, if I'm playing and I've got four defenders, I can, I can have two or three different types of personality. You look at the psychology of the people in front of you, strengths and weaknesses, and you try and work out the best way of giving them in communication and the best way of geeing them up. So you, all that is, as you grow up, you learn to learn, talk to different people. So it's about knowing the strengths and weaknesses and how they think and you know what they like and what they don't like. And, and Because really, you take the ball out, it's about people. Life's about relationships and people, isn't it? And, and yeah, totally. It's... People and communicating is like the currency of life. But the most important thing about life is connecting with people, the people around you. And that is just what humanity is at its core. So you'd be a good counsellor. <laughs> it has crossed my mind, I must say. <laughs> but I wanted to just touch back on your time at Everton as well. And you had a pretty incredible career at the, at the club. So... It was 751 appearances. Um, you won two league titles, two FA Cups, and you were also European champions. But do you have a standout moment from your time at Everton or like a special memory that you really, really like sort of hold in high regard? Yeah, we played Bayern Munich in a Cup Winners Cup semi-final. Mm. We played away and we drew nil-nil. And then we brought them back to our ground and it took us... Oh, three quarters of an hour to actually get in the dressing room because the boss couldn't get through the people. And then we went 1-0 down and then I think second half we ended up winning 3-1. It was a it was a proper physical battle. But I think that's one of the times that the team reflected what the city is. Mm. So of Liverpool is a really hard place to you know grow up in because you they're all determined, right? They're all dead passionate. They never back down from nobody. They've got a great sense of humour, but they're incredibly loyal. Much as like Everton fans and Liverpool fans are all arguing everything between each other, when somebody attacks a city, they stand together and they won't let anybody beat the city. And I think that night was one of them nights where we played like the people on the terraces. And it's, it's very rare, I think, that you, you get a situation where you think, actually, this is the city on the pitch. We're reflecting what you are on here. And I think for me, that was that was the best night of my career, to be fair, by far. If you're doing your job, the crowd is really a, a sort of wall of noise and you don't hear much, but that, mm. that night totally different. Totally, totally different where, I say, I think if we'd have played it the second leg over there, we'd have got beat. So I think the people did help us that night and they dragged us through it. A special night for us, really. Yeah, because... Could, what you mentioned there I find interesting is like sometimes the crowd just becomes like almost background noise and is there also then like um the longer you play football does the thrill and the adrenaline of it deplete in a way you because you get a buzz before the game you get a buzz after the game 
during the game. Like, look, and it, anybody who thinks it's going to be plain sailing is an idiot because there's going to be highs, there's going to be lows, and you, you know, what you do is you appreciate all the highs more because you know there's lows coming. That's why the, the one thing that does change, once you start winning stuff, obviously you know what it's like to, what there is to lose. Mm. So, and that's the hard bit is because whereas if you're, you're, you're basically win some, it's like, oh, never won this before. This is a good feeling. And then maybe you win somewhere else, you go, oh, that's good. And then the next time you go there, you've won two things. The team you're playing against hasn't won anything. And then you sat there going, it was fantastic to win them two things. This is So this is the feeling we had for both games. Shit, we can't afford to, you know, this is what's at stake. You start to realise the importance of what you're doing mm. and what it means to people and what it, you know what it means to your career, and all of a sudden you start thinking, "Oh, hang on a minute, there's a lot to lose here." We're in the start because you never won nothing. You're so naive, and you're going, "Yeah, okay, great. Let's just go and try and win it." Well, now once you've won two or three things, and it becomes you're the people to be shot down, aren't you? You're the people that people come and hunt after, and then you realise without what's at stake, and it becomes harder. And the teams that win a lot have got the most mental strength because they go, "Yeah, we know what it is, and we can deal with all that expectation. We can deal with all of that." And we can still win. So it becomes more different. The more you win, it becomes more and more difficult. When you, because what led you to eventually retiring? I think if I'd have retired at Everton, we'd have been okay. But I kept on playing because I enjoyed playing. I didn't see any need to stop. But then the, the, the other side of the, the other side of the coin is when you've been at the top level and you start moving down the leagues, is you become a threat to somebody else in their job. So, you know, if you if you go to play for the club and you, the team doesn't do so well, people are looking at you and then looking at the manager, thinking, "Well, I know, is it a conflict there? Is is you know?" And the manager's looking at you, going, "Well, he's a threat. He's got a name. Is he after my job now? Because we lost four or five games." And it, it becomes really awkward. I, I hated that bit. The politics got got me down a bit in the end, and it, I think it was time to, you know, I couldn't do what I wanted. I couldn't, I couldn't do the training. That I wanted to do so, so I thought, well, yeah. And basically, probably by that time, people thought, like, shit, anyway, we don't want him. So, told me that that happens as well. You shit. <laughs> That's fine because everyone's got a shelf life, haven't they? Yeah, it's interesting because I was actually speaking to an ex-professional rugby player, and he only retired two years ago. And he was saying that he really struggled towards the end of his career because you go mentally because you go from being picked in the team but he was just getting older and no matter what was you know he just wasn't as fit he wasn't as sharp and you go from being you know are we gonna win this am I gonna get player of the match that sort of mentality to oh my gosh am I even gonna like make the team am I gonna even get onto the bench to be able to get onto again and it's like slowly but surely your priorities start to change and you kind of go further and further down the pecking order. And it's a really difficult thing to kind of deal with sort of mentally. And that's what he said he really struggled with. Let's be honest, I was never going to get any younger, was I? Yeah. And how many facelifts I could have, but I was never... <laughs> It's always a shame, isn't it? Always getting older, never getting younger. That's always a certain. I think it's great getting older. It's brilliant. Yeah. Oh, good. Because I'm fearful of it. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you can do what you want. The older you get, the, the more you can do what you want. Yeah. 
You can. You can do. When everyone goes, yeah, they're getting older. You just do what you want and just. There's a, there's a good thing with age, right? Because you can, you can, you've been there, you've done it, you've got the t-shirt, and you can help other people through. And that, mm-hmm. that's that's one of the things is you you can help other people. You can see other things coming. But I was kind of intrigued to know because football had been such a huge part of your life. But did you ever struggle sort of finding your feet and identity after you retired? No, I just look. I worked for a living before, so I knew I knew I could go and work. And, and the thing was, I used to look after some of the apprentice goalies. I'd already sort of been half teaching or mentoring, and then obviously I did my tutor training. Yeah. So I'd, Worked in schools, and well, I worked in schools for last year. So uh, it's always been like that for me. So teaching is like coaching, and you know, and just building them relationships with the kids and whatever, and having a good yeah. laugh. Because that's I, I really want to get onto it. But like, how did you get into that career and profession of teaching? Because it is a really fascinating story that go from being a not many professional football players for one of the best teams of its time then ends up going and becoming such an influential part of society and being a teacher? Well, I I got a job looking after seven kids who, who was on the dole. Right. My, teach them a load of football skill, uh, coaching skills, and then try and find them a job or work experience. I thought, well, this is great when we're doing it on the training page, but we can't, we haven't got any schools, so I, I took him into schools mm. and in the end, we ended up running some sessions, PE sessions for the whole schools. What we found is when they did some agility stuff over ladders and things like that, they went back and their work was better. And then that, that scheme was coming to an end. So the woman who ran that school then said, well, come and do it for us. So then I did a, uh, it was a, like, to be a 14 to 16 year old tutor. That's what the, the you know, PTSE um, course, we did, I think, three years in two. We did it after school every every week, and I enjoyed doing that. And then, for me, I I've come across people who always helped me, mm. so I've been incredibly lucky. So I think you know if they're helping me, then well, I should be helping other people. What it's like, so uh, it's when when you work with the kids, like even though to last year I was working with the kids who. They said you've got behaviour problems. Is it behaviour problems or is it the way we're teaching them? Because we're not giving them the, the information the way they want it, are they? So you sometimes you've got to be clever and do it vocationally. And for me, it's it's not changed since football because in football, you're trying to help your team out, aren't you? So you're trying to help the people out with you. And I think it's, a, it's the best way of doing it. Yeah, definitely. And something that you'd come, I'd come across and you said that you can't teach without learning and which is so so true and obviously you've now you but you went into a profession of teaching but what I think is so beautiful is that it seems that a huge part of your life post-retirement has really been about learning as much as possible about all different sorts of topics to try and educate others and the way in which you've done it is through Twitter now, I've got to be honest, like I was always, I always used to describe Twitter as the cesspit of social media, but it wasn't until I came across your Twitter account and I sort of discovered how, what you were doing and using your platform for good. And obviously that sort of made me eat my words, but could you kind of explain 
a little bit about how you sort of discovered Twitter and explain the way in which you use it to kind of help marginalise groups within society? Well, I did set it up. <laughs> You'd be a lot richer if you did. <laughs> fellow who now lives in Morocco and we were doing some work together. So he says, what we need is a Twitter account and a Facebook account and then we can plug whatever we want to plug on there. And I type of like, okay. And I used to use it now and again, really. And then because in football, you live in a bubble. Mm. You, live, you live in that bubble. And while you're doing well, like it doesn't matter what you do. You could just run around the training rooms in, in your underpants for hours on end. Yeah, as long as you do all right on the pitch, right? <laughs> you can do whatever you want to do in that bubble because, and you think you're great mm. because you're massive ego and you think, oh, yeah. I'm great at this, I'm great at that. So you just do what you want. You get a false sense of everything, really. And then you come out, and then you go back to what I considered what I was really was, working class lad, and going back to work, which was great. And then I used to look at some of the, the Twitter stuff. I think, I have got no idea what's going on here. Mm. started to sort of talk to a couple of trans people, and then I started thinking, I have no idea what all these pronoun things are, right? LGBTQ plus. And then I text, I DM some girl, and I said, well, "What does what does by AF mean?" And she went, "I was fuck you, idiot." <laughs> and then I realised how much I didn't know. Right? right, okay, but that. And then I was talking to them, and I thought, I have no idea. And I'm sure there's lots of people like me who have no idea. So I could talk to them and I could just come out and blow out a load of old shit, right? And then somebody had asked me a question and I haven't got a clue how to answer it. So what a better way is to ask them to explain it. Mm. So like the trans woman and trans fella who I still speak to, use it. And that way people can understand it. And then I thought, well, this is okay. So maybe what I want, then I thought... I don't want to be Twitter all the time. So I wonder if I could get things, something five days a week. So that way I, I could do this on a Monday, this on a Tuesday. And then people would know that there's a place for them to come on that particular day. So the, the trans people did come on on a particular day. So I thought if they can build up their own following, then they'll all know that on a, on a Wednesday night, whether you're, a, you know, just coming out or whatever, or you're been trans for ages, there's a place where you can go and have a chat with, with, with people that, the same as yourself mm. and it build up their little community and their, and their little thing because even now I still get things I'm starting my journey I'm not quite sure blah 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 and I'm thinking oh, okay so luckily now I've got a network of people that I can sandpost them to and then I met Alan Secret Drug Addict and then we decided that yeah we want he wanted to go on there or we wanted to do two nights with him and I normally how many, how many lives that saved mm. by a few Right, so and we can double that because the ones that don't speak are still watching that. So that I think is what is so amazing about Twitter is being able to kind of like share all these different types of stories. You were sort of giving examples there about when you were giving your platform to um people from the LGBTQ plus community. And I know that are a strong supporter for LGBTQ plus rights. But I would love to know what your thoughts are on the Football World Cup being in Qatar, considering their views on homosexuality and homosexuality being illegal in Qatar. Do you have a stance on it? Will you be watching? What is your views on the matter? I watch the games, but I'd never go out there. 
million years with Ecuador. I don't believe in it. I don't believe, and, I, and I, one thing it brings up is the transparency about how you qualify for a World Cup. Mm. Qatar got a World Cup. On what basis did Russia get a World Cup? You know, for, for me, if you've got a terrible human rights, the last thing you want to be doing is dragging football over there just to be a showcase for a load of people with a load of cash to say, oh, look, aren't we doing great? You know, and the number of people that have died out there. And, you know, them stadiums, which might hold 60,000 people now, will go back down to 20,000 people after the World Cup. So the stadiums won't be as big as what they are now for the World Cup. So mm. why would you go? Why would you actually sanction going there to grow the game? Well, it's not going to grow the game much over there because you you because you need to change to other things to to help it. It's, to me, it's got nothing going for it. Mm. And no, Russia. And what's the point of going up there? So who who has decided that, and how have they decided it? Would be my question. Why have you gone there? Because I can't for the life of me see what what bit of it is a good idea. We never take it to smaller countries, do we? Who could do with a real boost? Yeah, just the the whole con, and it just puts a real dampener on the World Cup too. I feel, but it's also just like in this day and age that they even got to a point that one of the world's largest sporting organisations enabled it. It really does just leave sort of like a bad taste in your mouth. You know, taking it into a country where the human rights ain't great, there and Russia, to be fair, is what's that saying to the people? We really support you, but sod off for having a World Cup first. <laughs> I don't yeah. know what message we're sending. And that, that's, that's wrong. So we, we need to build a society where we treat our most vulnerable miles better than what we're doing now. And that would be a good society. But we tend to look down on, on the most vulnerable and there seems to be a big push from the far right now to eradicate trans people. Well, the best thing they've done is ban them from sport because you have to come up with a, a real good reason for banning people from sport and you have to have your science correct and then the opposition can have their science. So it, then it starts the argument about who's right and that's where the trans people need to be. They need to start the argument. Yeah. And ban you... And you, they've got a they've got a case to answer, even though it, it seems shit for a lot of trans people. It's really good because the unbeknown to them, the, the legal process and the legal process is the one that they need to go down and debate it for millions of years. Legal, legal, will sort it out in the end. And I don't think it's as straightforward as what everybody thinks. So I think sports got a massive change to come, and so so's work. You know, so is employment. What, what is what is a man and a woman? Mm. You know, prisons are struggling with it at the moment. And the uh, thing is, is it's you can't just ignore it. You can't just keep on just squashing it because people are only going to. There's only it's only going to be more and more people who are transitioning and being comfortable to come out and things like that. So it's not going to just disappear and go away. So you have to face these things head on. Okay, so this really these really are the last questions and. There are two questions that I always end on, and it's because I always feel like food and music often kind of provoke a memory, whether it be good or bad. So what I'd love to know is, is there a particular song that maybe transports you back to a specific time or place whenever you hear it? Yeah, well, when when we won the league, we played Born in the USA by Bruce Springsteen. Every oh, time. what a great song as well. <laughs> Just just before we got near the ground, 
that was always on. So we won the league listening to that song. And so, that every time you hear that, just transports yeah. you back to that best ride. Yeah, and I, and I, and I, knew, I knew somebody who knows Bruce Springsteen. And I said, oh, I, w- I wonder if he knows. I, I, apparently he does know now. That, that song was used that we won the league. So that was always a good song. Love Bruce Springsteen. But yeah, that's really lovely, that is. And then the final one is... Is there a particular meal that you eat or love that maybe triggers a memory from a place from your past? Well, I think one of them, I think we played Tottenham Hotspur at Leeds United's ground in a FA Cup semi-final. And, and we won. And after the game, we had fish and chips in the dressing room. And they all, they'd all gone to the bar and got pissed. And I think there was only about two or three of us and we had our fish and chips in the dressing room after after winning an FA Cup semi-final. That, that was nice, to be fair, because it was like, ah, done it. Yeah. Really nice sense of, uh, you know, we're sat here now, we, we've accomplished what we need, we've got to the final. And it was it was, it was was nice to have that fish and chips, to be fair. You know, and, um, and fish and chips have played a big part in my life, believe it or not, because when I was working on the buildings to start with, my pay packet would only run me till I'd be having paste sandwiches more or less most of the time until I got to Friday. Then Friday was fish and chip day. Do you know what I mean? So that was our mm. treat of fish and chips on a Friday. And then that was, and I didn't think that because I didn't have any money the rest of the week. And I had to that paste sandwich all the time until my wages got better. It was, it was a long time where I just had paste sandwiches and then. Come Friday, you you got your wages, and it was like, oh yeah, fish and chips, what he? Because you know, it was fantastic. I don't think like going to a Michelin star restaurant at times because mm. you think bought this before. And then... Yeah, similar things. I remember when, when I was a kid, getting fish and chips on a Friday was the biggest treat, and I would like go with my dad. You know, they'd like do the white baps with like butter in and be like can I have one and he'd be like oh, all right then and I just thought it was like the best thing ever that I could just like have a bread a buttered roll <laughs> while I was waiting yeah I, I think sometimes <laughs> because you're short of money and then that that becomes that that is like fine dining because you you know that the relief of getting through the week on paste sandwiches to actually getting a a decent meal if you like fish and chips and then going on when it doesn't matter what it's like, you finished your week's work, you can sit down in front of the telly, have your fish and chips, and you, and you feel like kings and queens because you're sat there having something that you couldn't afford for the rest of the week, which I, I think is a lovely thing. And I think you sometimes you miss that. Mm, definitely. I just wanted to kind of end on something that we spoke about earlier as well, but also it, this was beautiful quote that you, you'd written in your book. And it says... It all comes down to knowing people and communicating with people, yourself, your teammates and your opponents. It's the same or at least similar, whether it was a Wimbledon player trying to score via a long throw or trying to help someone suffering with anxiety and attempting to get them out of bed. And what I would just kind of love to know, someone who's worked closely and tried to expand their knowledge a lot with mental health and mental health charities, what advice would you give to anyone out there who is maybe suffering with their mental health or trying to be a support system to someone else who is struggling with their mental health? If you're helping somebody, you've been blessed with the two best things you've ever had. That's all they need sometimes, your ears. They don't need 
tons of advice. They just want to be listened to. And by sometimes them talking, they come up with their own answers. I, I think deep down most people know the answers to their problems, right? So, and they don't know how to about, go about getting them answers. But they know the answers deep down, I think. And um, if you listen, you know, if I talk to you now, right, and I'm going blah, 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 and then all of a sudden going, oh, yeah, okay, I'm, yeah, I can understand that now. But you don't have to say anything because I'm basically saying what's in my head and you're listening, but I'm actually saying out loud. You don't have to say anything because I'm already working out and you're basically just there as a pair of ears. And then I work it out. Listen, and that, that's all you got to do because half the time people don't listen. I've been given loads of advice and I'm as bad as anybody else. So, and then if you are struggling, imagine if you were talking to your kid. Mm. You'd be saying to your kid, just ask for help. Yeah. Because help's there. It's not, there's, there's no embarrassment. There's no nothing. So the bravest thing you can do is ask for help. Sometimes you get stuck in the woods and you don't know your way out. Yeah. Have you ever had any kind of real dark moments? I think I've always been low. So uh, because because you know, I'm quite an- analytical when it comes to my goalkeeping, I always try to work out shit. Then if I was going through a bad time, I think, right, what's the answer for me here? Well, why am I? Why am I doing? Why am I keep making mistakes? And then I get more and more anxious about making a mistake. So why don't I Saturday think, fuck it? Make sure you go out and enjoy the game. Uh, and that's it. Am I going to... No, I'm not going to die, am I? Because I'm only playing football, so... And you try and take the pressure off yourself. So all I want to do is go there and enjoy it. And if I don't enjoy doing it, so just go and enjoy it. Make sure you try and have as much fun as you can and relax and have a laugh. And that, that then goes, okay, took the pressure off myself because I ain't worried. If I make a mistake... Let's be honest. Who gives a fuck? I'm human. Do you know I'm human. I'm going to make a mistake. I. That's just unfortunately humans make mistakes, and there's nothing you can do about it. As long as I don't keep making the same one. But I think sometimes you have to take the pressure off yourself. You know. You know. If you if you can't, you struggle to get out of bed in the morning, and you beat yourself up about it. You're never going to get out of bed, are you? So even if you get out of bed and you put your feet on the floor, that's improvement, isn't it? This is how I think of it, right? Nobody's perfect because everybody's got a crack in their ass. <laughs> I love that. So, don't mean. Yeah, I feel no. like that's the perfect way to end this podcast. No, nobody, there's nobody in the world that's had a perfect life. You name me any sports person in the world. They haven't. Name me anybody in the world that haven't had a perfect life. They might appear to it on the surface, but they haven't. There's always something because life's not like that. Whether whether you're a multi-millionaire or you you've got ten quid, we've all got the same problems. Mm. He feels, and everybody's got their own way of thinking. It's just. I love that. Honestly, it's brilliant. Neville, um, I'm out of questions, but I have honestly had the loveliest chat with you. And it's been so interesting and insightful and funny. Thank you. You need to think, you know what I am, girl. Thank you so 